Morning, gentlemen. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, here we're going to pick up really on what we studied last week, thanks to, to Gary. And uh, we're going to see why the Apostle Paul is so encouraged, even with incredible things happening against him constantly. I mean, the, if, if you look in chapter 11, you'll see the kinds of crushing blows that he took, being stoned and left for dead, being whipped with 39 lashes on several occasions, shipwrecked over and over again. I mean, the man went through it all. And yet he was greatly encouraged and said, we don't lose heart. Now, that's an amazing thing. I want to know a guy like that. And I want to know what makes him not lose heart. When I became a Christian, I was, I was aware right away that there were several major benefits of being a Christian. I remember, for example, uh, the clear experience of having a an ethical framework for looking at life that I didn't have before. I remember how difficult it was to make tough ethical decisions before I became a Christian. I mean, where in the world do you go? You, you know, check the wind out and see which way it's blowing, see what everybody else thinks is right, not right. Uh, it's very difficult not to be a Christian and to have to make ethical decisions. And just listen to these ethics committees and how they go back and forth and try to figure it all out without a standard. But when I became a Christian and got the Bible as my standard, all of a sudden I had an ethical framework that didn't make life easy, but it made it simple. It really boiled it down to this is right and that's wrong and this is why God said it. And I was so grateful for that. I was also grateful when I became a Christian that uh, I had a purpose in life. Uh, Up until that time, uh, in my work and other things I was doing, I would sort of impose a purpose on my life. But down deep inside, I knew that it really, it really couldn't be challenged too hard or it was going to fall apart. So you kind of impose these uh, purposes or aims in life and, and just to keep you going each day. But when I became a Christian, I really got fully employed. And I knew why I was here. My job made sense. My wife and children made sense. Everything made sense. I could see how it all converges together on the kingdom of God. And I I remember that experience. I remember also the experience of getting a father. My earthly father and I had a good relationship, but I'd always tried to please him. And now at my conversion, I distinctly remember having a father to seek to please and a perfect father. And I would never forget the experience of that and and realizing that it happened to me. There were other benefits as well, but the chief benefit, and it dawned on me, of course, right at my conversion, the chief benefit was that I had an answer for my own death. Now, I was only 25 years old, and and those of you here who are around that age, uh, you know, we don't think a whole lot about death at 25, but you can't help but think about it because you're not in this world very long before you see people dropping off to the right and the left. And you understand that human life just doesn't keep going on. I mean, we're still grieving here in this room. Tom Hutton off my table and Robert, Hutton, uh, Robert Taylor off of one of your tables back there out of Amen Bible Study just these past few days. We're very aware of our, our own death. There has to be an answer for this. And if there's not an answer for that, then basically all of human life doesn't make any sense. And that's the reason that in the 20th century especially, early part of the 20th century with the, the emergence of existentialism in which one imposes 
a reason for existence on his life because life in itself has no reason for existence. And existentialism leads to nihilism. And we saw over and over again with literati after literati and philosopher after philosopher, they just take their own lives. Just look at the, look at the 20th century and those who are writing some of the most famous things and uh, they end up committing suicide. Why? Because they were smarter than the rest of us. They, they realized that life really has no meaning uh, in and of itself and that to impose meaning on life is silly Foolish, folly, and so why not just end it all? So when I became a Christian, and I suggest that when you became a Christian, those of you here who are, that one of the key, maybe the key, benefit of the Christian life is we've got an answer for this. Now we need to be sure we know what the answer is. Because when you have that answer, as we're going to see in our text today, it really changes the way you approach life. It makes a big difference here makes an enormous difference there, but it also makes a real big difference here. It changes everything when you've got an answer for that. So let's look at first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, and Paul's addressing this very topic. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, guys, we don't know everything about life, and we don't know everything about death, and we don't know everything about the afterlife, but we know some stuff. And it's that stuff that is meant for us to grasp and to appropriate in our lives, and it should be evident in the way that we live every day that we know some stuff. Now, you'll notice in verse 1 and in verse 6, Paul says, we know. And we want to focus on what we know. We don't know everything, but we know some stuff. And it's some stuff that changes everything in life. I'll never forget when one of my uh, good friends died, this is years ago, a friend of my wife's and mine. And she, I believe, was a real believer. But she belonged to a liberal church. And we went to her funeral. And I'll never forget sitting there in that pew listening to this preacher. Saying, well, now we don't know where, I'll call her Barbara. We don't know where Barbara is. Don't know exactly what she's doing. Don't even know if she's conscious right now or what happened to her. But 
She sure lived a good life. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this is BS. Somebody hook that guy and get him off the pulpit. That, that pastor didn't know anything. Now, we don't know everything. That guy didn't know anything. We know something. And the something we know changes the way we live, the way we think, and it changes eternity. And it needs to be embraced and it needs to be talked about for heaven's sakes, especially by preachers for heaven's sakes. Now, here's, here's, what, here's what Paul teaches us. We're going to see that Paul addresses what happens to us after life and what difference it makes. And he does it in three ways. First of all, he says we get new bodies, which makes us hopeful. And you can insert the word will if you want to. We will get new bodies, which makes us hopeful now. We will get new bodies, which makes us hopeful now. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, you notice, notice how, what he's calling our earthly home. It's a tent. What, what's the nature of a tent? It's temporary. You can strike a tent. You take it down. Tents are not permanent. They're mobile. They rot. They disappear. We're living in a tent. But we have a building from God. A building. He changes the word from tent to building. We go from something that's weak and impermanent to something that's solid and established. We go from something that we have now to a new building that God gives us. And it is not made with human hands. It is eternal in the heavens. So you go from a temporary dwelling with this body to a permanent, established body that will be eternal. It will have no end. Now that's good news. And that we know, he says. We don't know everything, but we know that. And that's a huge reality. Now, when we look at this, let's just face the fact that there are some different interpretations here. Uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, and Charles Hodge, the Presbyterian um, scholar of late 19th, early 20th century, believes that what Paul is talking about here is the building of heaven itself. And the reason that they think that is that they believe the whole context here is not talking about our resurrection bodies that we get later, but rather talking about the experience we have immediately upon death when we go into the presence of God before the resurrection. And the reason for that is, if you'll look in um, uh, verses... Uh, Nine, 8 and 9, he says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul there is talking about being out of our body and with the Lord. And there is, we'll, we'll see in a moment, there is a state that we go through where when we die, our body goes into the ground or into the sea or somewhere else, but our spirit goes immediately with God. And that's what Paul's talking about in verses 8 and 9. So Charles Hodge, Thomas Aquinas, and many other scholars would say what then Paul is talking about in the first five verses is not the resurrection body. You can see from verses 8 and 9, he's talking about what we call the intermediate state between our death and the resurrection. 
But most scholars, and and I'm going to follow them today, would say that Paul is actually talking about both events. And in the first five verses, he is talking about the resurrection body. The analogies there are just too rich, too parallel to 1 Corinthians 15 to deny. And it seems that what Paul is talking about is both things. He's first talking about the new body we're going to get one day, and then later on he's going to talk about in verses 8 and 9 what it means to be in the presence of the Lord when we leave this body before we get our next body. So that's the line I'm going to follow on this. Uh, the hope that we have uh, would, would be the same regardless of which way Paul meant it here because we'll see from other texts that Paul clearly shows that we will get new bodies and we will be in the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, the classic text, as we saw earlier this year, is 1 Corinthians 15 that when we die and our body goes in the ground or our ashes, it's like a seed being planted. And Paul says, you don't get a harvest until you plant the seed. And neither do you get your eternal body until you plant your temporary body in the ground and it dies. When Adam and Eve sinned, our body came under judgment. And as we learned last week, our outer nature is wasting away. Just look at yourselves. Well, you know, when I look at a, compare myself now to a picture of when I came here 19 years ago, I say, who is that kid that came over here 19 years ago? Look at the gray hair and the big body and all this. You know, how it change, you know, over 20 years. Well, some of you are changing faster than that. Just look at yourselves. You can tell this thing's not going in the right direction. And the reason was Adam and Eve. It's going in the wrong direction. You're looking worse all the time, every one of you. And so... Our outer nature is wasting away, but Paul says our inner nature is being renewed day after day. So there are two different directions. And that's the tragedy of being in this broken world. Our bodies and our spirits are going in two different directions. You're actually becoming younger, in a sense, in your spirit. You're becoming stronger in your spirit, and your body's getting weaker. So Paul says that this tent is being destroyed, but... We are going to receive a building from God. And you can look in 1 Thessalonians 4, this wonderful chapter, when the archangel comes and the trump of the Lord sounds, then Christ will come in all of His glory and He will raise up the bodies of His deceased. You say, how's He going to do that? Because, you know, if, if you've ever looked, if you've ever dug up a grave, I mean, come on, legally, I mean, and... You know, when they moved my great-great-grandfather's grave from one little place because there was a, they were going to build a building there because the town had grown, they are going to move his grave. All they found was a belt buckle. I mean, that was all that was left. Everything just turned to dust. It was gone. So you say, how's that going to be reconstituted? I don't know. You wait and you'll see. Uh, what God will do is he'll reconstitute the elements of our bodies for wherever they are. You say, yeah, but we've been dying for thousands of years and some of the elements in my body were actually in the body of some poor guy who died and it came up in a corn stalk and I ate the corn and here I am, I got his elements. How's he going to do that? I don't know. Come on now. We don't know everything. But I know something. And here's what I know. There's going to be a body that comes out of the grave. That's what I know. And, and I'm going to have a new resurrected body, a, a building established by God, given by Him, that will be forever and ever. That is the glorious, blessed hope of the Christian. It dominates everything. And we'll see here, this is what makes Paul 
hopeful. Paul had all kinds of reasons to be in despair. You have reasons to be in despair. Lots of things in your life are not going right. You're not sure that the stuff you've done in this life will endure beyond the next generation. You, some of you have built wonderful institutions or you know, established great businesses and all these things. You're not even sure any of that's going to go forward. But here's what you know. You have an eternal body that God's going to give you and you'll live in great pleasure before His very presence in that new resurrected body. You say, what's the body going to look like? I don't know, but you can take a look at Jesus Christ, the account of His body. That's what your body's going to look like. You're going to be like Him. And that's not a bad future, gentlemen. And it changes everything. This is the great hope. And this is the reason that Paul says in chapter 4, look, lots of bad things are happening to me. Look, look all the way in chapter 4, verse 1. But we do not lose heart. You see that verse? Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And he says over and over again, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And this is why. Because Christ has conquered death and given us a resurrected body no matter what happens to this one. Now, Paul shows us in verses 2 through 4 that we groan for new bodies. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean that we're in pain in this life, which we are, but it means that, that our spirits know that this isn't right. It's not right for our bodies to be getting older and weaker and dying. There's something not right about this. Our spirits know it. So they're groaning for what they know to be right. Just like Paul says in Romans 8, the creation is groaning in travail until the day of redemption when the whole creation is liberated from decay. So the whole creation is growing. And Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, God has taken up residence in our lives, giving us new life, therefore creating this massive conflict between the new life in our spirits and the old life in our bodies. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So not only are our souls going to be redeemed, but our bodies are going to be redeemed, and our spirits can feel the groaning and the travail. It's like a ship in a storm. And if you go down under into the hull, you'll hear the groaning, even of the rivets, holding everything together as that ship goes through the storm. And, and our, our lives are like that. So we're groaning, uh, waiting for our new bodies. And we are groaning with anticipation. Now, secondly, notice in verse 5, Paul says, we are guaranteed new bodies. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the Spirit comes into our lives, causing us to groan, because we now taste new life and know what it's like, and we know that our bodies don't have it. But when the Spirit comes, we also have the guarantee because God is not an Indian giver with all apologies to Indians. But He doesn't give and then take away. He doesn't trick you. He doesn't manipulate you. He doesn't say, well, I'll give it to you, but you know, tomorrow's another day. We'll see how you do then. No, when He gives you eternal life, that's just what it is. Eternal life. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God gives us eternal life. When we receive the down payment of the Spirit. You see, God's presence in our lives is glorious. But it's really just the hors d'oeuvre. It's just the down payment. It's the earnest that guarantees to us that the full inheritance is coming our way one day very soon. Now this is what the Apostle is talking about. 
And this is the reason he's saying, look, let's stick with what we know. And let's have hope because of that. This is the reason that the Christians go into a poverty-stricken area of our town and work with people who just don't seem to ever get it going. And we still have hope because we believe in God. And God is powerful to change lives radically, and He is powerful to see us through all the way to eternity, which brings meaning into every aspect of life. I was talking to someone the other day who spends his life with the poor. He says, it's just kind of funny to watch these suburban people come in there and try to fix stuff over a weekend. You don't fix the poor. (laughs) You serve the poor. And if you have to have cause and effect, if you have to have immediate results from your labor, don't deal with the poor. You're going to frustrate yourself and them. You serve the poor. And really, all of life is the poor. That's the only people you are serving are the poor. Broken people and broken world. So what hope is there for you? The resurrection. That God is going to come and make all things right one day. It's terribly inspiring. So we're guaranteed new bodies. Now, if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith that I printed out for you there, chapter 32, you'll see what the divines have said in summarizing biblical teaching on this point. They're saying the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. We know that for sure. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. And then look on down a few more lines, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Now, in order to study this more, uh, more deeply, let's turn to our next few verses, verses 6 through 8. And here we see Paul's teaching us, we will enter His presence, which makes us courageous. We will enter His presence. And that's what the, that's what the Westminster divines are saying. Paul says in verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. All right, here's what Paul is saying. As much as we value life, as much as we want to get meaning out of this life, there's a sense in which we're away from the Lord when we're in this body. This body, There's a certain sense in which this body, as much as we're trying to take care of it, trying to be good stewards, we value our bodies, we want to stay alive, as much as we value them, there's something about being in His presence that still awaits us more intimately after we get out of this broken body. So what Paul is saying is there's an advantage to being out of this body. Now we're moving into this other period. When he started in verses 1 through 5, he's talking about the resurrection. When Jesus Christ comes back in His glory, He will raise up all the living and the dead, the wicked and the righteous, and will judge them all in their bodies. And then those who are of the Lord will be with Him forever, and those who are not of the Lord will be in eternal punishment forever. That's what Paul is teaching in verses 1 through 5, consistent with 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now what he's talking about is what will it be like before the resurrection after we die. In other words, we all have our end time 
Not just the end times when Christ comes back, but my end time, my last day in this life when I die. What's going to happen to me? And Paul is saying, I'll be with the Lord in a sense in which I'm not now. You say, well, explain that to me. I can't. I don't know everything. I just know something. Here's what I know. That you are going to be with the Lord in a more intimate way than you are now when you die if you are in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here in verse 6. He says, we are always a good courage because we know something. And our courage comes not because we think we're stronger than somebody else or smarter than somebody else. Our courage comes because we know where we're going. And when you tackle that ultimate fear of death, nothing else is going to stop you. What makes cowards of us all is we don't want to die. The reason that we don't have sufficient numbers of missionaries among those in the Muslim world is because we want to be missionaries and live. It's just that simple. And the apostles decided they were going to be missionaries and die. And that's the reason we have the gospel today. Because some realized that they would have courage because they knew where they were going after they died. And as Paul says a little later, we'll look at it, he's kind of eager to get there. So he's, he's not risk averse. He's, he intends to be more risky. He would kind of like it if he can check out and go home and be with the Lord, which is better for him. This is what makes a man courageous. He's thought this through. He's contemplated. He's convinced of it. He knows it. That's what Paul knows. So we are always of good courage because we know that while we're home here in this body, we are away from the Lord. Now, turn to Philippians chapter 1, and you get probably the best expression of it with the Apostle Paul, who's giving something of his own testimony here. When he says in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 21, he says, uh, let's back up. He says in uh, verse 18b, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul's first concern is that Christ be honored in his circumstances and that he not be afraid and give way to the terrors of men and even to the threat of death and start whimpering and crying and fussing and complaining, but that he would exalt Christ in his body, whether by life or by death, and keep reading, for to me, to live is Christ. That's good. So for me to be alive at all is Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. But then he goes on to say, and to die is gain. You say, well, if you already have Christ, how can you gain? You've already got Christ. Because I'll be closer to him. I'll know more of him. So Paul is saying, I'm going to know Christ better when I die. I'm going to have more of Christ. I'm going to be happier. I'm going to have more of Him when I die. To die is gain. And then look at his reasoning in verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, I can't evangelize your friends and I can't help you if I'm not here. So if I'm here, it means fruitful labor for me to be here. But he goes on to say, but what shall I choose? I cannot tell. In other words, I'm ambivalent. You say, well, why are you ambivalent? If you can help us, don't you want to stay? He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Actually, in the original language where it says far better, 
there, it's, uh, it's uh, literally, it's more better, which is inappropriate, uh, Greek and English. I remember when my son was four years old, he used to say, Daddy, that's more better. That's exactly what Paul says here. It's more better. Because he's just trying to say it's comparatively, comparatively better, better. Better than you think. But look at verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is basically saying this. When we're in our right minds, for our own self-interest, we prefer to leave here and go on home. It's better for us. The only reason that we should desire to stay here is for somebody else's benefit. If you have anything in your mind for which you want to stay here instead of going home, you just made a God out of that thing. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's an estate. Maybe it's some vacation. Maybe it's some other pleasures. And you want to stay here to enjoy enjoy those. You just made those more pleasurable than Christ Himself, which means you made an idol out of them. You have no reason to be here on your own, for your own sake. Get that straight, get it in your head. That's going to make you courageous men. You have no reason to be here, no reason why you should want to be here, except to serve other people. You say, yeah, but what, what about when I'm on my deathbed and I can't even get up and I'm on my back and all, i got a breathing tube in my throat and pray for heaven's sakes. Come on now. You know the most influence you have in the world is through prayer and right there you are in your bed. God's now got you cornered and trapped. You can't do another thing. All you can do is pray. Shucks. What do you mean shucks? Now you're doing your most important work and you're here to do that and that's the reason you're on that bed withering away and you haven't gone yet. Is so that you can pray from the earth for people around you. Keep that mindset. <clears throat> There's no reason for you to want to be here. If, if there is, you're being very childish and foolish. I remember one time uh, we were talking about this with a group of elders, not here, but this was years ago in another place. And, and one of the elders said, you know, I can see why Paul wanted to go on. I mean, shoot, he was 60 years old by this time. He, he was all beat up. He didn't have any family. But I've got grandchildren and all this stuff. And I said, well, I understand what you're saying, but if you're still there in Philippians, you can turn with me. I said to him, I'll call him Bob. I said, Bob, just turn to chapter 3 and see what Paul says here in verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then look at verse 15. This is Philippians 3.15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I said, Bob, the issue is not whether you have a happy life here. The issue is whether you're mature or not. If you're like a little kid, you think this is the best it's ever going to be. And you're trying to hang on to everything you've got. If you're an adult, you've learned delayed gratification. And you've learned that the best stuff for you is later on. So it's an issue of maturity. So you want to grow in Christian maturity, get your minds increasingly set upon your future as your big hope, and that will make you courageous. Our courage comes not only from knowledge, but from faith. Look in verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now Paul has referred to this right up in chapter 4, verse 18, when he says, we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. So faith is a discipline of setting your mind on things you cannot see toward which you are marching, which you desire, which you are seeking. That's what faith does. It sets its minds on things that you cannot see. If you look in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the great chapter on faith, faith, the writer says in verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is being deeply convicted by the reality of something that your eyes do not behold. And then the author of Hebrews goes on through chapter 11 to give you example after example. What about Noah? By faith, he believed a flood was coming. And for years, he was building this huge boat in his backyard and everybody was making fun of him. Noah, why don't you get a real job? What are you building that big, huge monstrosity for? Oh, it's coming a flood. Yeah, right, Noah. Great. Sure enough, there came a flood. Because Noah was deeply convicted of things he couldn't see that were real. You just couldn't see them. And the writer goes on to speak about Abraham, who went to a country he'd never been to. He just took God's word for it and went. Went. Left his family and everything, just went, based on God's word alone. Or Sarah, who of course we know laughed, but the author of Hebrews 11 says, she believed God even though she was beyond age. And the woman's 90 years old. She's told she's going to have a baby. Yeah, right. But they believed it because God said it. And they put their faith in the impossible, humanly impossible, because they know that through God all things are possible. He speaks about Joseph, who told his kids, I want you to bury my bones in Canaan. Why? Because that's where you're going years from now. And so through 430 years of slavery, 430 years later, the children of Israel are marching out of Egypt, and what do they have? Joseph's bones on their shoulders. Because Joseph, by faith, knew that God would take His people out of Egypt into the promised land. The writer goes on to, to, to speak of Moses, who knew that God was calling them to a new country that he hadn't seen before. And he was taking the children of Israel through the, promised land, uh, through the wilderness into the promised land. Brothers, this is what faith does. It latches on to things your eyes cannot see. The secularist, secular just means this world, The secularist focuses on things he can see. And he manages his life and his behavior and his hopes and his dreams based on anything he can see. And if you base your life on anything you can't see, now you're unrealistic. You're a dreamer. Christians are dreamers. And what we dream of is real. Now Paul says in verse 8, our courage not only comes from knowledge and faith, it comes from anticipation. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather be away from the body, he says. Now, this is the reason I've I've noted here Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If you look at that text, you'll see that the whole key to the spiritual life, to the Christian life, is heavenly mindedness. Paul says, seek the things that are above, not the things on this earth. This is difficult. He says, seek the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Set your minds, he says, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So it's a matter of your mind set. Where's your mind set? 
is to be set on Christ and what He has waiting for you in heaven itself. Heavenly mindedness is the key to living on the earth. And when we are heavenly minded, we go ahead and give up on trying to grab for all the gusto in this life. You don't have to travel to every continent. You don't have to have sex with every woman. You don't have to have sex at all. You don't have to have perfect little grandchildren. You don't have to have grandchildren at all. You don't have to grab for all the gusto. You have to just simply seek the Lord. Find Him. And He has stored up for you every pleasure your mind can possibly imagine. Do you believe that or not? If you believe it, you will be of good courage no matter your circumstances. I was interested when talking to to Robert Taylor a few months ago when he was diagnosed with cancer. And Robert said he had four main prayer requests. One was he wanted to be healed because of his children and his grandchildren and his friends, but large part to serve his family and Nina, his wife. Secondly, he wanted to keep a sense of humor, which he did all the way to the last week of his life. God answered that prayer. He wanted to be a good witness to his friends. And if you were his friend and you're not a Christian, believe me, Robert had you on his mind 24-7. Prayed for you in those last months more than he ever had before. And as he told me just a few days before he died, God had given him a much clearer focus about the need to witness to his friends. And it's one of the advantages of knowing that you're dying is that you do get more focused. And gentlemen... Young and old alike, let me get, let you in on a little secret. You're dying now as we sit here. So let's get focused on what this life is about. There's only one thing you can do better here than you can do in heaven, and that's evangelize. Everything else should do better in heaven. But you're not going to have any lost people in heaven, and your lost friends are not going to be there, but they're here. That's the only reason you've got to be here that's unique to your place here is caring for lost people. So Robert was really focused on that. And fourthly, he said, he wanted to glorify God in every moment of his life. Now, what would Robert have meant by that? How do you glorify God when you've got cancer and you're dying? Well, by faith. You demonstrate your faith and your hope even as your body is wasting away. And Robert made it clear to the last minutes of his life, he was trusting the Lord. Like Job said, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust Him. Now, if the Lord had chosen to heal Robert, miraculously, and actually, two days before his death, he got a clear scan, no cancer in his body. It was a lung infection that that took him down on Saturday. But he had a clear scan. What if that clear scan had stayed clear and Robert had been healed? Well, let me tell you something. Within the next 20 years, we'd be back at his funeral anyway, if we were here 20 years later. Because we're going to die. The curse is on all of us, on our bodies. And our souls have been delivered from the curse, and our bodies one day will be. And let me tell you, Robert's prayer to be healed will be answered. And he believed it would be answered at the resurrection of the body. And that's where all the promises of the, of the Bible come true, every one of them, fulfilled in your new body. Do you believe it or not? If you don't really believe it, it sounds like pie in the sky. It sounds like an excuse to let God off the hook for not healing you. But if you believe it, you're saying, my God, what a healing that is. 
What an amazing fulfillment of the promise you made to me. That all my sins would be forgiven and all my diseases, I'd be healed of all my diseases. What an amazing fulfillment of that promise. So Robert actually found the answer to all of his prayers. When Tom Hutton was dying, he speaks to his wife and he just simply tells her. You know, and, and if you knew Tom, bottom line. <laughs> no frills, no, fan, no long speeches, bottom line. He just says, honey, everybody lives and everybody dies. And when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. And it's good. And it's His will. End of speech. That's called glorifying God in my death. I'm showing those closest to me who know my heart what I really believe. I'm not getting my underwear or I guess when you get really bad off, your diaper's in a knot. You know, uh, I'm not going to get all upset about it. I know where I'm going. Sorry for the agony it causes all the rest of you, but I know where I'm going. Don't worry about me. That's what Paul is saying, is that we are of good courage because we have knowledge and faith and eager anticipation. Gentlemen, I've had men say to me from time to time, well, you know, I'm reconciled to my death. And they kind of stiff upper lip it. Now look, <laughs> you, you don't... Maybe you've got a third of the story. Let me tell you the other two-thirds. The other two-thirds is awaiting you is a life like you've never had it before. So don't give me this stuff. You're just reconciled to your death. Tell me this. I'm thrilled about my death. Now you're starting to get it. That's where Paul is. He says, for my interest, I want to go on. I'm eager to see the other side of the Jordan. So that's, that's where you are when you're maturing your thinking, when you've really begun to grasp it, and then you'll see that gives you courage. Because you see how insignificant this temporary struggle is because we're going to an eternal relationship with God. Now, verses 9 and 10. He says not only will we get new bodies and enter His presence, but we will enter His judgment. And that makes us reverent. We will enter His judgment. He makes it very clear. He says whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. And why is that? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So you see how those play together. Everybody here is going to appear before that throne. Now, if you follow the life of the Apostle Paul, you can see there were several places where he faced judgment. When he was in Corinth, he was brought before the Bema, and that's the judgment throne. And the Bema is a place where the civil magistrate would step up on a platform and give judgment to everybody below him. Paul's faced that. Later on in Paul's life, after this letter, he faces the judgment before King Agrippa. In all of his scarlet robes and the red robes of those around him and all the majesty of that imperial court, Paul comes in chains and appears before the human tribunal. Paul's basically saying those tribunals are nothing compared to the tribunal that every one of us will face. So every secret of your heart, every deed ever done, every word ever, ever spoken comes into judgment by the living God. Make no mistake about it. Everything is judged. He is the judge of the earth. And that makes us a little nervous, doesn't it? Oh, you mean that really bad thing that I thought about my wife? It's all going to come out at that point? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. They all come, all those thoughts and deeds and, and actions uh, and words come under judgment. But when you're in Christ, 
the payment has already been made. The judgment has already been executed. Christ is declared guilty on the cross. Not because He ever sinned, but because He was bearing your sin. So you face the judgment and you're declared innocent. You go, hey, hold it. We have... So, you mean you're not going to condemn all these terrible things that I know I did? I mean, I was, I was expecting to see the long list of stuff, Lord. And He says, no, it's all that long list already fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying, yes, there's this awesome judgment. But what will it be like for us as people who have been guilty of many, many different things personally and find that we're brought before the judgment and declared completely innocent? And furthermore, things that we did with mixed motives that others might call good, we get credited for, even with mixed motives, and we get rewarded for it at the judgment. It's completely unfair. It's called grace. So at the judgment, you will experience grace. But for those who do not have a substitute, you had a substitute who stood in your place, took all the shame already. All that stuff that you hope doesn't come out, it already came out and killed Christ on the cross. And He knows about all of it and consciously took it upon Himself. And the Father has already brought it out and already condemned it on Jesus Christ with His wrath while Christ was on the cross. You're set free and declared innocent and declared to be His child and rewarded unfairly for stuff you did that doesn't deserve a reward. But for those who have no substitute, every thought, every word, every deed will come into judgment by the living God. Oh my, what an awesome thought. And what this does, Paul says, to back up in A there, verse 9, This causes us to want to please Him now for two reasons. Primarily here in this text, he's talking about the fear of God, the reverence we must have for Him. Because yes, even though we know that our substitute has died in our place and already faced the judgment for us and will declare us innocent, God is still an awesome judge and He is our God. He is our Father. He is awesome. And therefore, our whole lives are lived in reverence for Him. Secondly, because when we think about the judgment, we can't help but think about the substitute, Jesus Christ. And you say, Wilson, are you pulling this out of the air? What's this substitute stuff? Well, I just say, look ahead in chapter 5. We'll come to this next week. But look at verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the justification of God or the righteousness of God. Christ was made to be sin for us. So when we think about the judgment, we can't help but think about our salvation. And when we think about our salvation, we can't help but be grateful. And when we think about our salvation, we can't help but anticipate all of the benefits that will devolve upon us when we experience the fullness of our redemption, even with our bodies. And even when we leave this body and go into His presence. That's what changes everything is having the answer for your death and embracing that answer, cultivating that answer, being deeply convicted by that answer. And when you find yourself cowering before anything in this life, you go back and say, Lord, forgive me and strengthen me in my knowledge, my faith, my anticipation of my life after death. That's what kept the apostle going. That's actually what kept Tom Hutton, Robert, 
going. That's what keeps us going. And nothing else will. Nothing else is big enough to keep you going. Otherwise, you're going to lose heart. This is how the believer continues his ministry, continues his life, and continues to be greatly encouraged. He's got his mind set. And it's set on things above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your sure and certain word, leading us to a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life for all of those who put their trust in Christ. We pray for every man here that we will indeed confess our need of you, our sin, the need for forgiveness and righteousness, and we will trust you for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and walk out of here knowing, believing, trusting, convicted, convinced that you have provided an eternal life of great joy for all of us. We pray that you'll make us more diligent in this life, that knowing that we die and that you've prepared a wonderful home for us, give us aim and purpose. Give us zeal and courage in all that we do for you today and throughout this week and throughout our lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.